What up, what up, Meepsters? This is Ryan Rainbro, and if you're hearing this, that means you're about to listen to one of the 99 free episodes of the Meep Meep podcast available wherever you cast pods. But keep in mind that there are new and unreleased episodes of the show on patreon.com slash meetmeetpod. So you'll want to sign up there to hear future episodes and also other side projects like Choo Choo, the show about soundtracks and contribute suggestions for future episodes as well. Will I listen to your suggestion? <laughs> There's only one way to find out. Patreon.com slash meetmeetpod. Bye! What up, what up, Meepsters? I'm Ryan Rainbow, and on this episode, we're talking about a unique entry into the Roadrunner catalog, and I might say that a lot, but maybe I don't say it enough, because every band is unique and special, but on this episode, we're talking about a band called Jupiter Coyote that had already existed well into the 90s by the time their 1998 Roadrunner debut came out, Here Be Dragons, and they were kind of in that wave of, like, the Counting Crows and... I don't know, maybe Tonic or some of this like kind of alternative rock jam band, Dave Matthews. I guess Dave Matthews band is a better comparison than uh, Tonic, but I do like Tonic. Remember that You Wanted More song? I think it was on the American Pie soundtrack. I remember in the music video, the singer is a janitor. He's cleaning up the toilets of the school and God bless him for it. Somebody needs to because that they, those toilets, that bathroom was so disgusting that one guy that banged Stifler's mom, he wouldn't even use the bathroom at school. You remember that? Anyway, the point is that uh, I don't think Jupiter Coyote likes being called a jam band, or maybe they didn't back then, but uh, they do jam, and they are a band. Um, unless they think it means that it's a band that likes jams, like jellies, like uh, preserves, if you will. And I do like a spicy jelly myself, but this episode is is spicy because it was recorded live. What? It's happening right now. It was recorded live at one of their shows backstage. That's right. I got all access at the Jupiter Coyote show. And uh, an interesting aspect about it is that their bass player did not want to participate in the interview, but he did want to play bass one inch from me the entire time. So you're going to hear him just riffing, and he's sick. You're going to think, if you were to just hear the bass playing he does while I'm trying to have a conversation with somebody, you would think that he's in the Red Hot Chili Peppers. He's just, I mean, he's fleeing it up, peanutting it up like 311. But then if you hear Jupiter Coyote, you would find out that there's no point in time where he's ever playing bass lines like that. So what was he doing? What was he warming up for? The world may never know, but I liked it, is what I'm trying to tell you. And you're going to like hearing it, because you're going to hear it the whole time. But I love Jupiter Coyote. And I like that Jupiter Coyote was on a label called a Roadrunner. I like that Acme Acres, Acme Core. Acme Acres, that's where the Tiny Tunes live. Acme Corporation aspect to the lore of the band. But what do we talk about? We talk about Edwin McCain being on their album. Remember him? I'll be your crying shoulder. Wow, if you would have just Shazammed that right now, your Shazam would be like, was that Edwin McCain? No, it was me. 
Ryan Rainbow. And we talk about them taking part in Sister Hazel's career. Remember them? Not going to sing them for you. You only get one song for free. And we talk about all sorts of stuff with Matt Mays, the stalwart of the Jupiter Coyote brand and band. And I take you to that event right now. I know you were a basketball player when you were younger. Are you a Hawks fan? I am. You seemed reluctant to say that you were. Well, the, it, well, because they can turn in, you know, they can turn into the Falcons. Well, they break my heart every year. I'm a, I'm a diehard Hawks quick. fan. <laughs> so you're a Hawks fan. Yeah. yeah. Well, then you know. <laughs> then I know that it hurts every year. I'm like, oh, they trick man. me into thinking they're going to yeah, be. Well, we're going to make a robbery. We know something will implode. Yeah. But yeah, Meyer and I are big Hawks fans. Oh, that's awesome. Okay. You know, I'm, at, I'm, I'm from Texas. I grew up in North Carolina. So I'm a Cowboys fan. And I've decided after this year, I'm, I'm going to become a Falcons fan. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm fully ready. I'm ready. I'm ready to embrace the Falcons. So I live in Augusta, a couple of them in Macon, San Jose, Atlanta, okay. a couple of them in North Carolina. We're kind of scattered now. Well, growing up, uh, you know, we never, we had the Hornets and the Hot, we don't have a South Carolina team, so you kind of had to pick which one was going to be the home team. The Falcons existed way before the Panthers, which also aren't South Carolina, so that they were always my home team, too. So I always have the pain of being a, an Atlanta sports fan that's uh they break my heart all the time. But I the was, Hawks in particular. I was them. actually going to walk on for the Hornets the first year they had the expansion league. Before we got in the music career and I got out of college, I could have gone to Ireland and played pro. And I turned that down. They didn't offer me enough money or I would have gone. Oh, wow. Um, international basketball hadn't taken off in 1987 and 88. That yeah. didn't happen until after we took the Dream Team to the Olympics in 92. And the bigger players when Russia split up. And that country broke up. you got to remember, all those great players in that area had to go play for the national team, the U.S. Soviet bloc. When it broke up, you had these pro teams popping up everywhere. These guys were paying some good money. And you'd go to 80 countries now and make a hell of a lick. There was only one country you were going to when I came out. You were going to make any money, and that was Italy. They let two Americans per team. They weren't bigger than 6'9", forget it. They needed big guys. They needed guards. So there was no G League. You well, know, how tall are you? You're a big guy. 6'3". Oh, you're 6'3". That was three. a shooting guard. Okay. You know, now, coming out now, three-point shot came in when I was in college. So, coming out of college where I was now, I'd probably be drafted in the second round because there's a premium put on that. It was not when I came out. So, the whole game's changed. But the plan before this music thing took off was to go walk on for the Hornets. And if I didn't make it, I was going to go take that deal in Ireland and travel around through Europe and play pro basketball for a while. And this band thing just kind of took off. So. Well, that, I mean, it, it all worked out, I would well, say. It did. You know, sports <laughs> is a short run. You're only going to do that while you have the virility like, to do it. And you're always one injury away from that being able, especially playing at a high level. So, this, I'm still pretty old and I can do this. <laughs> I'm not going to walk out and play a full court basketball game. That's over. Since you uh, spent so much time in the South, were you guys ever into wrestling? My brother was an uh, all-state wrestler. Well, like pro wrestling. Oh, pro wrestling. Yeah. Oh, you mean wrestling. Oh, well, I apologize. Yeah, wrestling. Yeah. Are you having to wrestling? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Old school wrestling, you know. Yeah. Nature Boy. Right, right. Of course. Claire. Dusty Rove. My dad went to high school with Wahoo McDaniel. What? <laughs> sure did. <laughs> Texas. Really? Damn sure did. Wahoo was a damn hell of a football Chief player. Chief Wahoo McDaniel? Wahoo McDaniel, man. I remember Wahoo. Dusty awesome. Rove, baby. I got some messes in my teeth. Here Be Dragons comes out in 98, but at that point, you've already put out several albums. Four. Four albums mm-hmm. on your own label, which is what? Autonomous? It's Autonomous Records. And Autonomous means? Self-governing. And you decided to give up 
your autonomy to this machine of Roadrunner? Well, it was it really not really. It was, okay. a, it was a joint venture deal. So okay. it was two tiered. It was, uh, imagine acquiring an independent label and kind of using it like a farm team for a major league baseball. That's kind of what it was. So we were the first band to hop from autonomous to sign exclusive flight, sign a major deal with Roadrunner. But behind that was a a press and distribution deal acquiring our independent label, so we could still bring in up and coming talent because we already had three or four other bands on the label at that time. And then we would kind of get them up to speed. And when they were ready, then we would shoot them up to Roadrunner. So it was like a farm system, you know, to get them ready to make the hop to the majors. There's plenty of record companies. It wasn't, wasn't a novel strategy. There's tons of them were doing it. But Roadrunner, as you just said a minute ago, was very good at acquiring these smaller indie labels and kind of working them up through the ranks. So it was a joint venture deal. And we were the first one to hop. So, yeah, we didn't really give up the label. It got a little squirrely on our back catalog where they we put that into their distribution hub and they tried to snatch it. I had to get it back. I ended up, me and Doug ended up cutting a backroom deal so I could get all the pressings back. They were punch-outs. The barcodes were punch-out. We took them. I, we worked out a deal. I bought them off of him. They put them on a semi-truck, sent them to my house, and we took them out on the road and sold every one of them. But there were thousands of them. I mean, a pallet tall as this room full of them. Four albums. Four back albums. But in their defense, I want to say this looking back on that. The timing of the Rec- the record industry when streaming streaming wasn't a thing yet but downloading was just starting file sharing was just starting with Napster, Napster. that was the beginning of the whole thing com- coming down because it really hurt sales not only just us but it, it, it was amazing how quickly that palm dried up and when it did Roadrunner didn't do anything wrong it's just strictly a numbers game for business those sales tanked so bad that they couldn't afford to keep any of the independent labels to come subsidize us to keep it going. It just wasn't there. You weren't making it. It wasn't, you know, nobody's fault. It's just shit luck. You know, that, that's kind of what happened, you know. But so you're saying that they re-released your four previous albums before? Well, we already, you know, we'd been, we'd sold, man, some of those we'd sold over 100,000 of them on our own already. What we did, we, did, we, we they repressed them every time we needed new ones. Some of them we had thousands already sitting around we were selling on the road. But we, they put them into their distribution hub, which was a company called Red distribution handle all roadrunner stuff so we moved all of our back catalog into their distribution hub because it was bigger than the one we were using and we got better coverage bad timing again because it didn't really matter because you you remember how fast blockbusters were going out of business i mean nobody was buying cds anymore sure you can put them in there that it was amazing how quick the titanic sank (laughs) it was a matter of a couple years and it was just gone man so yeah and they got stuck with all those cds i'm like when we and I bought them. We, I think I paid a buck a piece for all of them. But I think they were under just as much stress as we were. I mean, they were watching. Yeah, never back. Though. We all well, that not yet. That they hadn't come along yet. So I think we were all feeling the stress of like, holy crap, man, this thing is getting ready to just wipe out a huge revenue stream for all of us. And it did. And it's never recovered. And just when you didn't think it could get any worse, streaming came along. Which made it even worse. Every time you've had one of these paradigm shifts in the music industry, the artist has just conveniently gotten fucked worse every turn. It's almost a joke. Now you don't you don't make shit off your music. It's really a marketing tool and a ditch effort. Hope people come see you play live. So well, that's kind of what you are. guys, uh, uh, your strength was anyway, right? Your it live was, show. We, we lived. We were touring band. Still mm-hmm. are. Not to the level it was then. I mean, we've played close to five thousand shows. So. We can't do that anymore. We're too damn old. So we cherry pick the ones we can. 
But uh, yes, we were willing to trade that out in a grassroots effort, much like the old Grateful Dead model or Widespread Panic or other bands and jam band scene where we were, where we would sacrifice our record sales and whatever if it generated butts and people come seats, you know, shows. We'd make our money there. So that's kind of how we did it. It worked. But, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's, I always say that's like plowing behind a damn couple mules and not an air-conditioned John Deere tractor. <laughs> that's a hard way to do it, man. You can do it. But it's, you know, it's a lot of hard work on the road. We were gone a lot. Well, I definitely understand wanting to get that wider distribution. So that makes perfect sense to me. But why was it Roadrunner? Like, how did that specific relationship be the one that you ended up Simple doing? answer, because no one else would sign us or do it. <laughs> We, there was no one else. We got turned down. I had a rejection label, re- rejection letter from every major label that you can think of. Epstein used to, I imagine, used to keep them in a folder. We laugh about it. You got to realize we sold a quarter of a million records on our own and we're getting rejection lo- la- letters from record labels. We heard it all. Singer sucks. You know, you're too country. You're too rock. You're too twangy. We like, we don't like all the jam stuff. You know, we heard it all. Just the reason to not. So it never happened. That's the simple, short answer. It was Roadrunner because we didn't have any other option. Okay, that was the only. That was the only. That was the only offer we got. And like I said, it wasn't really a bad deal. We didn't lose our independent label. We got to keep it. Epi and Larry Mills were still running it with a little set route. Actually, went to Sire Records after she left us. Uh, she's still in the industry. So it wasn't. We didn't have to give that up. Now we gave up a pretty good chunk when we signed to a major deal. We got a pretty good deal on our record deal, though. We we never saw a dime out of it. I think we got paid six hundred bucks mechanical royalty from Roadrunner, and that's all we ever made. Everything else, uh, label sales wise from our records, went into recruitment re- recoupment for the recording of that album, and also the recoupment, which was unfair, which Doug and I were arguing about all the time. The recoupment for the advance that was loaned to Autonomous Records to work these other bands. Coyote's record sales ended up picking up the tab for that. That wasn't really fair. They didn't own that. We own that. And Autonomous Records did not own those own those albums. Jupiter Coyote owned those albums because we paid for them. Tour. That record label, that record label was just a name hit. The band's touring and numbers from touring bought and paid for that those albums. So that's when Doug and I, okay, let's just broker a deal. You take them, let's call it a day. You know, and we did, and we were we were able to work it out. Well, I know that you're telling me uh, the timing, of course, is why things didn't happen the way that you wanted. But what were your expectations outside of just the distribution? Did you think that they were going to create like a radio single for you or a video? Oh, absolutely. And they did. They got added to about 146 rock stations. It was a recut version of Ship in the Bottle. Years ago, a child's brown eyes stood at the mantelpiece. He wondered how the ship got in the bottle. Yeah, we cut it. Yeah, we cut a whole verse and part of the bridge out of it to shorten it for radio, which they wanted to do. And it did. It got added. But here again, it just didn't. You know, this whole thing was like sliding off a slippery slope timing wise. You know, when things started going south, they, you know, they were reluctant to spend any more money wisely as you should because revenues were dwindling themselves. It was just that it was already starting. So you don't want to, you know, everybody was kind of hunkering down a little bit to see, how, okay, is this just going to be a bump in the road? Or is this a new trend that's going to really affect our industry? And it was not a bump in the road. It was the beginning of an avalanche. Was there ever an idea to license anything with Looney Tunes when you're the coyote and they're the roadrunner? No, but that's an excellent idea. You know, they are, uh, I do know from, I've had a cease and desist from Warner Brothers before about having <laughs> the Wiley Coyote on one of our things. So I think they're fairly anal retentive about not doing that. They're going to keep all 
all of their uh, rights and royalties that are tied to those characters. No, that never came up, although it would have been funny as shit. So you mentioned, yeah, you guys re-record a couple songs on Here Be Dragons that uh, is on older albums, and then I think you've since re-recorded all the songs that are on Here Be Dragons. We did, redid them all. Because, well, actually, the statute ran out after, what, seven years when they shelved it and didn't put it, you weren't doing it anymore. Um, so, yeah, just went ahead and redid them all and put it back out because so, it was basically evaporated. It was gone. All those songs were sitting there. You can certainly do that. Probably could have arguably put the same thing out after uh, seven or eight years or whatever it was when that contract actually wouldn't have been a big deal. They didn't sell enough of them, I think. You know, we were all kind of on a sinking ship together, you know. I say we weren't on the same ship, but we were in two ships in the same friggin' ocean, and both of us were sinking. <laughs> so it was a question of whose ship was going to go down first. You know, and it was really nobody's fault. As I look back at it, it's just bad timing. You know, things things change. You're still experiencing the, these ebbs and flow in the business now. I mean, it's just you know, I say I've seen this happen three times in my 32 year career, and if you don't stay in front of it. And, and embrace the technology and try to use it to your advantage any way you can, you're absolutely going to get left in the dirt. <laughs> and how you approached recording Here Be Dragons was a lot different than the other albums too, yeah, right? Yeah, we all have home studios now. You know, digital workstations and stuff 15 years ago weren't worth the crap. But about 10 years ago and even closer in, they got sounding pretty good. So we all have home rigs. So it would be easy to, you know, redo those, remix them, re-record them. Well, I'm so, talking about in 98. You, you, oh, 98. That was all done on tape in the studio. Right, but the, the first couple albums, you did it with the same person. I think this one, you did it differently. We did. We did the first three albums with Johnny Salmon, who's a legendary producer down in Decatur, Alabama. Did a lot of old Allman Brothers stuff and Southern Rock stuff, Greg Allman. Right? Tons of his resumes and incredible. So we really learned how to cut our teeth and learned what we wanted to do in the studio and how to do it, old school way. From Johnny, so we did Cemeteries, Way, and, and Lucky Day Sounds. Then we said, okay, we've we got enough down about knowing how to do this, so we booked the old Capricorn Studios in Macon, where we were based out of, which at that time was called Phoenix Sound. We cut Ghost Dance there, and then we uh, Roadrunner let us cut Here Be Dragons in the Cal- in the Capricorn Studios. So we did that. We brought in actually we brought in John Mellencamp and Mike Wanchek's uh, engineer. Oh. A guy named uh, uh, Jeff Busher from Indiana. And uh, we'd done some pre-production work at Mike Monchick's place at Echo Park in Indiana. And we said, you know, we didn't really like what Mike was doing, but we loved what Jeff Busher was doing. So we flew him down, and he helped engineer Skip Slaughter. (coughs) And then we produced it. You know, they mixed it. We produced it. So we knew enough about what we were doing. So we did it all. We did the whole album right there. Did you have any idea of maybe because you're – having Roadrunner involved that you would bring in like a producer, especially with uh, how the sound was kind of blowing up at that time? Uh, I, we, they didn't suggest, they didn't give us a short list of people to pick from to do it. They said, well, if you guys are capable of doing it on your own, they'd already heard stuff we'd done on our own. We're damn well capable of doing it on our own. Okay. And we didn't want a good engineer. And uh, it was done on two-inch tape. It was not done in the digital format yet, although some of that was just starting. That album was actually cut on tape, all the old traditional way. You guys re-record Rose Hill, and Edwin McCain is on it he on Here Be Dragons? Yeah, was an old friend of ours. I met Edwin in Hilton Head when he was first starting to play. We had a Sunday gig at a place called the Old Post Office, and uh, Edwin was playing over at the Wild Wing. He just opened a Cousy. It was on a Sunday. He comes walking into the post office at Soundcheck. He broke some, some of his guitar strings, couldn't find a music store open to buy any strings. He said, do any of y'all have any extra acoustic strings? I'm playing a show tonight, and I gave him a pack of Martin acoustic strings I had with been friends with him. 
So the same year that this album comes out, a few months after it comes out, his single "I'll Be" blows up and is you know like the biggest song in the world. So was there a an idea of releasing the song that he's on as a single versus shipping? Well, it was them twofold. Edwin loved the song. He was an old friend. We played tons of shows together. Uh, he got signed. Jason Flom, who was actually at Lava Atlantic, had signed Edwin. And really, Edwin will be the first to tell you, you know, thanks, thank the Hootie guys for getting that deal because they, they, they're the ones that told him, hey, mm-hmm. you need to go get this guy. And Flom came and looked at us a couple times. He flew to Birmingham and watched us play. <coughs> he came to this very venue right here and watched us play one time. And we intentionally in Birmingham went out and opened up with an 18-minute song on purpose in Birmingham just to scare him off. It worked. Okay. <laughs> he, you remember that, Gene? He comes I back. He comes back at Five Points Performance Hall and he says, God Almighty, y'all are, are absolutely unfucking believable band. If y'all blew me away musically, I bet I, I have no idea what I would do with y'all. So we said, I said, well, just put it out the way it is. Don't overthink it. He said, I, you know, he says, I come down here and y'all, y'all played an eighteen-minute song, the first one. Like, <laughs> well, yeah, it's one of our more popular ones. <laughs> <laughs> Do you guys consider yourselves more musicians than you do songwriters? It seems like you kind of re-record these same batch of songs on a regular basis. No, no, no. There's, I've written 300. There's oh. 228 in our catalog. Now, we've recut some of those old ones, but that wasn't done just for fun or lack of material. <laughs> that was done for a number of reasons. And here's the biggest one. None of those early album songs ever got released to any type of radio or format. Now you've got the streaming monster in there, which is dictate all the playlists is like getting out of modern-day radio. Their curators pick it. You're a moron if you don't put some of that in there. You cannot take a pre-recorded song from the album that came out in 91 through and resubmit it. Same one. That doesn't work. It's already in their system. So if it's remixed, remastered, or re-recorded, you can. So, okay, we made five albums that never saw the light of day. Six that never even saw the light of day at streaming playlists because they that wasn't there. Didn't exist yet, right? Didn't exist yet. So, sure, you'd be... It was... It's a good idea for us, like we just do cut, recut Crazy Women and Real Thing, two of our biggest songs. One of those gains traction virally at one of these streaming things, and you know, the other thing that's really cool about it, that we don't get paid shit, but I like this about it. I can pitch these songs into playlists that are in different markets, different genres. Mm-hmm. That used to never happen. We have to pull off a single that could be in AAA, Hot AC, Rock, one of those. All right, and, but we were a band that came... Had some country rock stuff, some kind of bluegrassy stuff, some jam stuff. Now they're curators. You can pigeonhole those songs, and you can put this stuff in front of a whole potential audience and listeners that don't even know you exist. That's kind of cool. Another reason you're crazy to not do it. So we took a couple of those, absolutely redid. But if you look at our Spotify thing, go look at it. We've released 14 singles in the last two years. 14. There's 12 more coming. And before that, in 18, was a 80-minute full-length album. Spotify is a 1,200-pound gorilla. I don't like how the whole thing works. There are things I do like about it. It's cut out record labels, and it's cut out radio programmers, which I never liked. Those were the biggest obstacles standing in the way for us reaching potential fans, especially radio programmers. So we've removed all that. Now you have a much easier access to get directly to a potential listener's ear if you do. And the bigger you get and the more streams you get, the more preferential treatment you get out of them. So you can see... When you start getting some traction, how it can snowball. We're in a very unique and interesting and good position because we have a gigantic catalog. We've made, what, 18 albums counting the four Raptor Trail records? You've never even heard that. You need to go listen to those four Raptor Trail records. Well, what's it's harder progress. It's me, Gene, and um, Myra. And it's really a 
harder progressive rock. You got like distortion on the guitars oh, on those? Oh, God, dude. You just jot it down. Okay. It's, called the it's on four. Apple Music. It's yeah. on all of them. All right. It's called The Rapid Trail. We made four albums for that thing. It's, it's really just uh, it's, it's us on steroids. But we wanted to do some hard rock stuff, and Meyer joined us. He's kind of a heavier, harder player. So, you know, we like that, like some of that kind of stuff. So rather than confuse our audience, we just started a side project. Why did you call the album Here Be Dragons? Uh, Sanders, what was the name of the guy who did the artwork? Mark Matheson. All right. For what? Are, what are we Dragons. Talking? What did Mark Matheson? sounds familiar. Mark Matheson, did who did the artwork, up came up with it. And um, just I don't remember exactly. He just listened to some of the rough guys. mixes out of the <laughs> studio <laughs> session. And that's what he came up with. You know, it's like. Oh, shit. And I think part of it was that we knew we were going into this new deal. And it was uncharted waters for us. Sure. So, you know, of course, that's the, you know, that's the saying on the map. Here be dragons in the old nautical times those areas on a nautical map were areas that had been unexplored that's why they say well this area here be dragons because we don't we don't know what the hell's in there so that was kind of where it was the, we were moving in a new direction we were trying something bigger and different and no one really knew what was out there man. you got any favorite dragons puff the magic <clears throat> Gosh, bowser i don't know i'm not i wasn't really a big a dragon person <laughs> so you seem like a big Dr. Seuss guy. He's got some dragons, uh, yeah, dragon-like well, creatures. I guess nothing's technically a dragon. Well, yeah, we do, we do have a song called Fly to the Lorax, so, yeah, a little bit of that. In Something there. about Whoville. Whoville. Yeah. Yeah. That's two. You, well, you mentioned Ship in the Bottle being the single, and also you've re-recorded it. Can you tell me a little bit about just what that song's about? Yeah, the reason that we did that last version of it is because it never got recorded the way I wrote it. There's an <clears> intro, <throat> intro piece of music, instrumental, always got cut off. There was a second verse in a repeating bridge that always got cut out in one verse, and actually two verses got cut out. I never liked it. I thought the song didn't it didn't sound completed to me. It didn't run the whole the whole story of a young boy moving through these rites of passage in his life until he gets to a point where he realizes I want to go out and do what I want to do. You know, not being stuck in the box that society or culture or whatever wants to put you in. And it it. To me, it didn't ever make sense anymore. It was like unfinished. I give you an example of this. To me, that's like somebody telling you, hey, paint me a great picture. You know, so I paint them a great picture. But say, well, it's got to fit in that space on the wall. I'm like, well, it's not. It's too big for that. Well, then we're just going to cut off a fucking third of it so it'll fit on the damn wall. That's what you did. That's the same. It's, you just ruined it. It, you, it doesn't even look the same anymore. So that was done intentionally to finally do it with all the lyric and verses in it the way I originally wrote it when I was in college. I wrote that song 35 years ago. Uh-huh. At least. But it must mean a lot to you. You keep on bringing it back. Well, it does. We won't have to do it again because it's finally done right. You know the nice thing about streaming platforms and having the autonomy to do all this stuff yourself? I don't have people telling me it's too long. Doesn't fit the format. Cut it. Short it. Doesn't matter anymore. Spotify doesn't give a shit if it's 30 seconds or 30 minutes. 
They don't care. <laughs> you know, they're gonna, it goes in. That's beautiful. You know, I don't have to deal with that anymore. So, you know, that format's wide open. You can do whatever the hell you want to with it. So that's, that, from a creative standpoint, it's pretty nice. Yeah. You know, that I don't have to worry about shortening songs and then lose so much of the meaning to them. So, yeah, we're not sitting here rehashing old songs because I can't write any new ones. I've written <laughs> Wasn't that why songs. you can't write you new know, ones? Every damn time, every I just, week, I'm cracking out and Yeah, but that was the reason. It was a kind of a, okay, now that we could, I actually don't have to worry about somebody kicking it out because it's too long. Sure. Let's, let's do it the way it was written. You know, the whole thing. Play the whole thing. Yeah, it's got some long, it's got some cool shit musical sections. We're not taking that off the band. You know, so many labels wanted to sign us, but they wanted to take all the jam and the muscle off the band. Mm. We're like, we're not fucking doing it. No, we're not gonna do it. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, that's like the essence of who you are. It makes it sense is. to me. It's party. You look, man. We're all hanging on that coyote's fur. None of us were gonna change it. That band has evolved into what it is. It's gonna happen here in just a minute, and it's we're, we're it's gonna go where it's gonna go, and it's it's okay. It's just let it, you know, let it play it the way you feel it. Let it be what it's going to be. Quit trying to dang carve it all up into something you can sell. You know, if you go into this, everything you're doing, I've been doing this 33 years. If if, if you're trying to do this thinking that way, well, if I do it like this or I do it like this, maybe people will like it. You're going to have a long, hurtful, painful, saddened career. Because it's probably not going to happen. So you might as well do it the way you want to do it. Do it the way you want to do it. Figure out a way to make it fly. If it does, it doesn't. If it doesn't, it doesn't. You don't have to carve it up anymore. I think that's great for a lot of these younger. I mean, look at a band like Dream Theater. This is some of this stuff. I mean, it's it's just incredible, epic pieces of music. You know, we've probably never seen the light of day or have a fan base without some of this technology. Just open this Pandora's box for bands like that to, you know, Porcupine Tree. I mean, we just think we've got so many really good ones. We've got, got top-notch musicianship and writing that's not banal twaddle. It's got some serious musical muscle behind it, and a lot of it is pretty long. Yeah, absolutely. You know, long compositional pieces. Yeah, Porcupine Tree put out an album that was just one song that was like an hour long. <laughs> Steven Wilson, he's, he's, yeah, he's not afraid to try whatever. whatever When he throws the bucket in the damn well and whatever comes up, that's what he does. You know, that's he doesn't get waver off of it. Is, uh, is Rose Hill a place, like a real place? Yeah, it's a cemetery in Macon, Georgia. Oh. And it's, uh, Allman Brothers used to know the Allman Brothers started in Macon, Georgia, and they used to go down there and party back in the 70s and stuff. And Elizabeth Reed, Gravestones in there, Dwayne, Barry, and now Greg, too, are all buried in there. Oh. And Dwayne and Butch. Butch. And Butch in there, too. So, yeah, we used to go down there you know, party when we are in a band was first started and take band pictures and stuff. So yeah, Rose Hill is about finding beauty in strange places because that spring we were taking those band photos. There were wildflowers. We were in the old section of the of the cemetery, and um, there were wildflowers growing up all through the old headstones. I, was, I remember looking at it, going, <laughs> "Wow, that's that's really beautiful in a creepy way." Was in your back pocket. So I went home that oh, night and wrote Rose Hill. And that whole song is kind of a mystical song about youth and running into the night and you sure you had it with romance you? of that Inside. and then finding beautiful beauty and odd and strange things it feels like a party though it's such a feel good song it is it's still one it will be a monstrous jam tonight because we do a jam in the back of it that just goes to a whole other planet oh nice yeah that's uh, one thing that I noticed about a lot of the songs um, specifically uh I Know Nothing which has Beth Wood on it right it who was also on Autonomous she was um, 
that you know it'll uh even though none of the songs necessarily are like like we're saying like hard rock whatever you like you know do a lot of shredding like there's some ripping yeah leads on some it. good lead line stuff in it for sure you know just not not as hard rock as of a lot of the other stuff that was on road road sure yeah, sure that's, but that's still sledge stuff on there can you tell me more about Beth Wood? Oh, God. Felty, our other guitar player at the time, ran into her. She, uh, she's from Texas. I can't remember what town Texas. But uh, he had met her somewhere. She went to Brevard College up in Brevard, North Carolina, where we were from. It's three of us anyway. Somehow Felty ran into her and just got to, you know, she was kind of just getting started playing her guitar and the folk scene stuff. I'm like, golly, listen to this girl sing. I'm like, shit. You know, she's really good. Yeah. And she, what really got our attention was how good of a guitar player she is. I mean, she plays guitar in alternate tunes and stuff like Joni Mitchell. Oh, wow. I mean, she's really accomplished. I mean, intricate, you know, spins that thing all kinds of ways. I mean, you know, she's not just some girl playing three chord folk songs I mean way way better than that Joni Mitchell's the closest thing I could compare to I think mean, Beth's a better singer but she plays good guitar like Joni did so, did she play guitar on your album too? no she oh. just sang we just brought her in to sing she had a voice like a dang and you did Wooden Coyote with her? We did a, uh, an acoustic thing that was a fiddle player, the other guitar player, me on banjo and bass. We did like four, well, we did it a couple of years. Then we recorded two or three of those live shows. We went out and played in four or five different cities. Now, you know, then she moved back to Texas, got married with Colorado, divorced, and I think she's in Bend, Oregon now. She's got a lot of, a lot of music, a pretty good catalog. Check her out on Spotify. She's talented. There's no doubt about it. Plays piano too. I think she should be here. She should be up there with Paul Cole and Jimmy Mitchell. She's that badass. So at this time, I mean, you have like all your friends coming. You got Edwin McCain. You got Beth Wood. So is that is that kind of the vibe of just uh, your band? Because of course you've been a band for a while at that point. Now you've been a band even longer. But in '98, like, was that? Always an aspect of it, just kind of a, a family vibe where everybody's it was, coming in. And so much of it started playing together at shows. Like my sister Hazel was from Florida. You know, we were from Georgia, but maybe the first show we ever played with those guys. We uh, they opened up for us at the Double Dynam in Aspen, Colorado. Of all places, was the first time we ran into them. We were like Florida band. You know, I don't. I'm not quite sure how we got put together there. I guess the guy was promoting the venue. Just thought it would be a, um, you know, a good matchup for both bands, and then. We already had our independent label going and trucking, so we brought them on our label, put out their first album, and then we ended up selling them up the road to MCA. Sure did. And you know, they had a hit. MCA wanted it. They bought them off our label, gave them a fat advance in the budget. They went out and recut that album and all for you and had sold two million copies of it, and the rest is, there you go. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Yeah, I didn't that's know how that. it happened. They had signed to our label. We weren't going to hold them up. We're like, hell yeah. You know, you guys, they were poppier than we were. They had radio accessible stuff. We we're, were way more jamming yeah they had that kind of like counting crows vibe too where it was like alt rock so it was like you know we we said you guys need to take this and do it you know this this is going to be a one-time shot and you're absolutely crazy if y'all don't you know do this and their songs were shorter you know they they were they were more tailor-made to make that hop and have some success with it and they had a couple catchy as shit songs they really did i was actually obsessed with uh their fortress album when that came out with champagne high and uh one of the newer songs that are on Here Be Dragons, newer at, for that time frame, was is Every Time, which opens the album. And it's probably my favorite song on the album. We'll play that tonight. Okay, sick. I had a friend in uh, in Denver, Colorado. We were out there, and his roommate was a girl named Emily. We were talking one night, and she said, you know, no one's ever written a song with Emily in it. So I said, well, all right, well, 
So, uh, you know, it was kind of an interesting story, almost like a bizarre, weird love triangle, because I'm not so sure she wasn't involved with one of my best friends. And then, you know, we came to town touring, and then we kind of hanging out. Nothing that came out of it, but it's with that song. You know, I think it was it's one of those romantic songs about near misses. We're not at the right time, and, you know, just wasn't meant to be, you know, for a number of reasons. I mean, not, you know, she was involved in some other stuff, and I was gone all the time. So it's just really kind of a introspective tune about ships passing in the night, man. And that one seems a little bit more, I mean, you know, of course you could jam it out and do a 30-minute version tonight, and I won't know. But, like, it seems a little bit more, like, uh, structured. It is, and it will be tonight. We don't, you know, some songs lend themselves to jamming and some don't. Oh, okay. Uh, the trick is to figure out which ones do and which ones don't. Because the ones that don't, it just starts to sound like bohemic noodling. If you're not making it go anywhere, it's not worth doing. It's hard for an audience to stay with that. you got to make it go somewhere. Johnny Salmon taught us that. Hey, guys, nothing wrong with jamming and long shit. Just make it go somewhere. Okay, that's good. So Here Be Dragons comes with a merchandise catalog. Okay? And you've already told me it sounds like you're very business savvy with the music industry, despite the fact that you still do whatever you want to do. You find a way to make it work for you and with whatever you want to do. So can you tell me about how that became a big part of Jupiter Coyote being like this merch monster? I know you got like <laughs> dog shampoo and there's all sorts of like... Yeah, well, that, you know, that thing was I have a hunting dog. That I fell into that backwards. Uh, my wife, who's an internal medicine doctor, ex-wife now, was uh, had a whole skincare line thing. She was doing on Amazon private labeling it. That's how that is. You need to... You guys got hundreds of thousands of fans. You need to figure out something you can do. So I originally started looking at Amazon to do that with... With merchandise, what you're talking about, yeah. too competitive, way too much competition, and too no, couldn't make any money here. So I bagged that, and then somehow I fell into that dog thing when I, you know, a guy who manufactured for veterinarian clinics, moved to Brevard. My wife met his wife at the coffee shop. We went and made Mexican food, and that's how all I got going. He ran, ran the company that made all that stuff and sold it to my the vets. So that's how that happened. That's kind of a side hustle. Okay. The whole thing. I was like, I really, I, I, just something I was goofing around with on the side. But, you know, microbreweries pop up, and I'm like, gosh, all of our fans got dogs. It's like, it, well, you know, it's perfect. Right. So, but the merch wing was always a big part of it. You know, it was just another way. You know, we had, when Jupiter Coyote Incorporated was a sub-S corporation, and there were four sub, sub, sub-corps under it. There was a... Uh, JC Merch, merchandising was one of them. Uh, the uh, Jupiter Coyote Touring was another separate one under Jupiter Coyote Inc. That was the main header. And then Mayfeld Publishing, one of my publishing companies, was on there for all of these. So there were three of them under there. And the Merch Wing was always a big, intricate part of doing that. Uh, you know, we didn't, it didn't take us long to figure out, hey, you know, we get this stuff at the table and you, you start, people start buying it, you know, you need to have it out there. We weren't contractually bound to any record label, so we were able to sell all our music at shows, and we sold hundreds of thousands of them off the truck at shows. Yeah, <laughs> it was. So you know, hey, we need to continue doing this, you know. So we, that money kind of stayed pooled into that particular branch of that company <laughs> to introduce new stuff, new shirts, new things to help pay for recording, the touring part of it. And yeah, it, it was self-sustaining. We didn't make a whole lot off of it, but. It, Great promotion and advertising and marketing. You know, we move a lot of that stuff. But uh, is there one item back then that was like the 
Jupiter Coyote item that everybody got, or did you you kept the inventory? So well, they were buying a lot of CDs in the early days. You sure. know, when you could cut out the retail markup and pass the savings over to your fans, right? It shows you know it wasn't costing us crap to make them. Like a, a zebra print, a little more buck markup. You know, you get ten bucks, you're making out about as best. You know, that was pretty good, pretty good look at the table. Uh, yeah, some of the early T-shirts, the first uh, classic Coyote logo, black <laughs> one, the stick one that I drew. No. That was, and then that swirly dog one. And we still got some of those old vintage ones up there. That thing is like our steal your face for the dead. Mm. That, that's what it turned into. What about the JC that's like in that the That was circle? the second one that somebody came up with along the way that kind of mm. caught traction, but still not as popular as that black and white round one with the coyote head on it. And oh, you know, okay. what we liked about that is it was self-explanatory. The piece of art it didn't say the name of the band on it. So you either knew what it was or you didn't. That was cool. Yeah, that is cool. Because it's like your logo, but like you said, it's like right, if you know, you know. You don't, doesn't say, so you don't know what it, what the hell's that, you know. Either if you know, you know. Well, finally, I mean, you've definitely mentioned some uh, positive aspects of getting to do the album and get to do things with the songs that you didn't get to do before. Um, is there anything that you would have done differently with this experience with Roadrunner, uh, as far as, or just the album in general? Would you have done anything differently looking back? I know you said you kind of have well, different perspectives. Well, both of our, I don't think there, were, I don't think there was a thing that either one of us could do about what was unfolding in the music industry, especially at the label front of it. I mean, the Napster thing and downloading was a big, big, big shift, and no one really knew what we were up against. Record companies were going after the wrong people, pirating, whatever. What we all should have done. Was, yeah, I'm going to ask you a question. You know what I would have done? I would have built my own damn hub sooner. A whole thing. I just would have sucked it up, built the whole thing in house. I wouldn't even need Spotify, Google, Amazon, or Apple right now. I would simply have the thing on my own base, my own site, my own thing, and move it to a subscription base like Spotify does, or a certain amount of it for free. It'd be the same model. But I would have it all in house. I would I would have started on that seven or eight years sooner than I did. That was I could have been ahead of that, and I wasn't. You know, you know, it's amazing what you can achieve when you don't have any options. Okay, <laughs> that's the way I look at it. Isn't that true, Gene? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, it's not it like out. we're a fucking bunch of geniuses. But it's <laughs> like okay, it was one road to go down, and that was it. So, what is your favorite thing about this album? I think, I, I tell you what my favorite thing on this is, I think one of the best songs I ever wrote on this album. Words. Which ones are you going to eat? Absolutely one of my favorites. Yeah, Gene killed it. Uh, great performance from everybody and just that song just packs a lyrical punch and it's a pretty it, you know it's got a whole bridge section and it's like three songs rolling into one yeah that is a uh, one thing that I mean you kind of mentioned it earlier as far as uh, you know make sure it goes somewhere because a lot of these songs sometimes with the jam parts they feel like a completely different song but then it all you know ties together which yeah, I guess is if you can loop it back in which <laughs> that one does without it derailing you know so yeah that was a that's my favorite, one of my favorite songs. Well, 
Well, there you have it. Jupiter Coyote still out there playing shows and releasing music. At the time of this recording in spring of 2023, they just released their latest single, The Real Thing, which is the 10th version of that song on Spotify. So you can go and check that out, compare and contrast the different versions. It is not a cover of The Real Thing off the Judgment 9 soundtrack, which I believe was Pearl Jam and Cypress Hill. But isn't that a good idea? You know what? Maybe that's what the 11th version should be, is a little mashup. So go ahead and follow them at the real Jupiter Coyote on Instagram and recommend that to them because God, I want to hear Matt rapping. And uh, while you're at it, go over to Meet Me Pod on Instagram. Say hello. Go to Spotify. Leave a minimum of five star review. Try to leave six. See if it'll let you go on the Apple podcast. Write a nice little note to me. Say, hey, bud, really appreciate you singing that edwin mccain song at the beginning of the episode and make sure you're checking out the patreon patreon.com slash meet me pod you could have heard this episode before you heard it i'm guessing but what i'm certain of is that my name is ryan rainbow this is meet me and yes that's the best that i could come up with bye <laughs>